Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Briefly, let me just remind you guys that my album is out under the moniker Havana Swim Club. It is sample-based indie dance music with some semi-tropical flair. We are listening to a little clip right now. And the links to Spotify and Apple Music and YouTube and all that stuff are in the show notes. So feel free to add it to your summer playlists or your study or work playlists. Uh, it's instrumental, so there's very few vocals. And it's not that distracting. Now, to today's episode with Heather, I explained quite a bit at the beginning uh, with her, so I don't need to say much here other than that I love this stuff. I find her work so helpful. I hope that you will find it helpful as well. This actually makes two weeks in a row, uh, last week with John Sanders and today with Heather Griffin, just talking with people who help me make sense of my experience of the world, the religious community I come from, etc. So... You guys are in for a absolute treat, and I wish I could hear all this stuff for the first time again. Okay. Heather Patton Griffin, thank you so much for joining me today. We're going to do a little more throat clearing than normal because it's hard to think about how 
it's hard to talk about how to think about the work that you have been doing here, right? Because you're you're working on a master's, you're on your way to your kind of academic writing career, thinking career. But I think that what you're already working through is so interesting that I'm unwilling to wait for you to like do the proper book, you know? <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged scholar uh, just finishing my master's degree. So I've, I've lived some life before mm-hmm. I went back to grad school and have mostly been doing informal ministry, ministering people, ministering to people that are like me. So I received a lot of help in my 20s by a church that was very trauma-focused before it was cool, Mm. and they were great at teaching practices, and I found that as I got older and moved away, I naturally gravitated towards helping people that shared a lot of the same struggles that I had when I was younger. So a lot of my work in graduate school is geared towards answering questions that have come up within pastoral care. Yeah, well, that's a great way of kind of setting the stage for what you're talking about here. And and I would, I want to use a little analogy here for kind of how people might think of this. So we're recording this on April 30th and last night was the NFL draft. And I know that because I'm a 49ers fan and they made this massive trade to, to get this third overall pick. But the first overall pick was this guy from Clemson and he was, everyone knew he would be the first pick. He played two years of college ball, I think, When he was in high school, people started talking about him eventually being the number one pick in the NFL draft. I think of the work that you're doing now kind of like the Trevor guys, like maybe his senior year of high school. I think that this stuff is going to be number one draft pick material in a couple years when you've had time to, you know, make it official and don't blush too much. But I'm so stoked about this project of yours, but it is early and you're working it out and we're going to get through some of this terminology as you are kind of making this thing coherent. And I would describe it as as basically it's a sociological map of evangelicalism and the way that evangelicals interact with truth and communicating that truth to each other and then the way that they're perceived by the outer the outside world. Uh, It's a lot about epistemology. It's a lot about how we know things. And it's this awesome kind of map with a handful of these really helpful terms. Does that does that sound right to you? Sure. Yeah. It's only recently been on the horizon that I might pursue PhD work to write about these particular things. Um, I've always thought about my interest as geared towards soul care. But the models of how we know and grow within soul care shape how we relate to our neighbors and how we think the world works. So in the ancient world, everybody thought that the way you thought about this, the the way that you understood the soul was going to be the foundation of how you understood how human life organizes. (laughs) So a lot of the problems that we are seeing in white American evangelicalism have to do with these questions of how do we understand the nature of the human soul? How do we understand the mind, the heart, the body? How do we grow? So a lot of the things that I've been interested in for decades now have turned out to be incredibly relevant for these struggles that a lot of people are facing. A lot of the questions people are asking now is how did this happen? Does it have to be this way? 
what happened to our witness? <laughs> what do we do now? A lot of those things are relevant to questions I've been asking in the context of one-on-one -on -one discipleship, because these are playing out on a much larger scale. Right, right. There are two things that I love about that framing, specifically in terms of this is coming out of pastoral care. Number one, the level of insight that I think you've got into what we might call the evangelical, it's both the mind, but it's also the social web. It's not just an individual thing, as people will see. Right. Um, I think that it's, insight- It's our navigation system on the ground. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah, exactly. I think your insight into that is like really, really rings true to my lived experience with evangelicals and within evangelicalism. So it makes sense that it comes sort of organically out of interacting with people on a one-to-one -one basis. And then also, I, I think you don't necessarily need to do a PhD. You can you could write this book and it will spread <laughs> with a master's. I just don't think it – you know, if you want to like go the proper academic route and get it all, fine. But either way, I know you're going to write this book eventually and I'm excited to, to be talking about it with you uh, early on before all that. So basically you have a bunch of these terms that you have kind of mm -hmm. coined – and we're going to kind of go through them as a way of getting the the layout of this map. Right. And the first the first one I want to talk about is and I, by the way I love this. People should follow you on Twitter. I'll put a link to your your Twitter handle in the notes. But you always capitalize the first letter of these terms to sort it's of It's an 18th century quirk. <laughs> I love it. It actually is really nice because it yeah. it shows the interaction of the Bible truths. Capital B, capital T. Yeah. So what are Bible truths, Heather? So I came up with the term Bible truths as a shorthand for describing patterns in white evangelical evangelicalism that are derived from fundamentalism. So this gets to your epistemology interest. How do we know things? So it comes from this disposition where we see the Bible as this collection of facts proof texting would come out of this. You could take verses out of context, make them into propositions and use them to build a logical argument. Most of scripture isn't actually organized that way, but there is a way of training ourselves and training each other to approach scripture that tends to look at things as, as atomized facts rather than as wholes. So a Bible fact would be some sort of scriptural nugget or propositional truth that people will treat as uninterpreted. So you'll often, if, if you're in a culture that leans, leans towards Bible facts, which most cultures are a mix, you very rarely see something that is this extreme. You will see a tendency to treat scripture as if there is a plain reading that is uninterpreted. And there will be a suspicion of people who are reading scripture differently under the assumption that they're imposing some sort of agenda or cultural lens that is not there in scripture. Whereas my reading as someone who's accessing Bible facts is just, you know, pure clean eyes. <laughs> I have no agenda. I am just reading with sincere faith. Our church is just Bible based or our church mm -hmm. just reads the Bible. That's yes. a perfect example of this Bible yeah. facts approach, right? Yeah. And you'll often hear that when somebody is is tired of an argument and they just want to shut it down. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So the the literary 
And scholarly term for this is the perspicuity of scripture. Yes. That scripture, uh, perspicuous means it's just if you have it there in your language and you have, let's say, a seventh grade reading level or maybe even a fifth grade reading level, Mm -hmm. you can get it. You don't need anything else for God to speak direct truths to you through the plain text and a plain reading of the text, right? Yes, it's it's a very populist understanding of scripture that could only come out of the Enlightenment. <laughs> so the Enlightenment is in many ways elitist. You know, you still have these strong social hierarchies, but this idea that the common person possesses some sort of magical common sense to see reality the way it is, is vastly appealing if you're somebody that has been lower down on the social hierarchy. Right. So, and there's, there's a good impulse that is underneath this. Oh, there's something that's, that's true. That's getting clouded with overconfident claims about our own ability to know. And I, I think the truth that's underneath this is that if you read the new Testament, it's incredibly subversive to Greco Roman social hierarchies. You don't have to be born an elite. You don't even have to be born a man. You don't have to, you don't have to be born as a Roman. You could be a a Scythian. You could be a Jew. You don't have to be born as a Jew. You could also be a Scythian or a barbarian. Samaritan, Um, right. Whatever. Yeah. 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 So there is a, there is something about the Bible truths. There's something sort of parallel to it that we would want to affirm. Yes is something I'm careful to do is to to not be elitist and to have a populist streak in me around things like prayer, direct experience of the divine. You know, there is a sense in which people with a lot of education can lord it over other people, can become I mean, jerks, but uh the word <laughs> I'm what's the word I'm looking for? It starts with a p. Uh oh, s uh can become sanctimonious, right? And can you know, I, I'm I'm guilty of this as somebody with a, a pretty good working intellect and who likes to spend a lot of time reading and thinking. You know, that's not the end. We're yeah. not the only people around, and God doesn't love us more than God loves people who are not into that stuff. So there is something good there. Yeah, I, people that are intellectuals tend to be theorists, and I love theory. I love theory like I love a good map because I get lost easily, but. You can know your way around a territory and not be particularly reflective about how you're moving around. Mm. So right. there are there are people in the world that are wonderful practitioners that either don't have a particularly well thought out f- theory about what they're doing, right? But they're faithfully following Jesus. They're bearing good fruit. <laughs> they're <laughs> they're not getting published because they're not writing. And sometimes if if they do have theories about what they're doing, they're not always the most helpful theories Hmm. because our account of what we're doing has no necessary relationship to what we're actually doing. That is such a good and interesting point. Yeah. If you – like if I were to interview some of these people you're describing, these people who really love God and who are – but who are swimming in some of these – Bible truth type evangelical circles, Mm -hmm. the way they would explain what they're doing would be really unsatisfying to me and the listeners because it's not actually what they're doing. Their description of what they're doing is not necessarily accurate. They're going to use the language of whatever people say around them and think that that's what they're doing, but they're actually maybe doing something a lot more complex and beautiful, right? Exactly. Which is why 
in our efforts to protect ourselves from what has been harmful about certain theories or ways of naming the world, we need to be careful to not reduce people to their words. Mm. Uh, because that will that will close us off from walking with people, observing, attending to what is helpful and what is unhelpful. It's its own sort of quest for certainty just huh. to write people off on its uh on the basis of theory. Fantastic. Ha! Heather, I love that. Okay. So, but nonetheless, as a theory, Bible truths is is pretty shaky and and doesn't actually really uh line up with the text that we are actually given. It doesn't, and it gives people a false security. Uh because it's it's a kind of contractualism. Mm. So, most of these things come out of a human desire to keep ourselves safe in a world that is very unsafe yep. in a world where people are not always trustworthy. So if you subscribe to a very simple view of scripture, where if I'm sincere and I read scripture, I'm not interpreting it. I'm just getting it basically as it is. If that's not actually what's going on. And if our interpretation is shaped by how we've learned to relate to people through our families, through our culture, our language, if our interpretation is shaped by our church tradition or just by the modern world, then we're going to end up with certain conclusions and we're going to we're going to trust people that have that same formation. The explanation for why someone might agree with us is that they must be sincere as well. And their common sense must be operating correctly. It's rooted in this desperate fear that A, we're going to get it wrong. God is going to be mad at us. Stakes are high, and be this fear that somebody's going to put one over on us. Yeah. So you've already hinted at the next two terms, kind of in that description. Mm -hmm. Let's take them one at a time. The first one is sanctified common sense. You said common sense earlier. So yes. what do you mean when you talk about again, capital S, C, and S? <laughs> uh, what is sanctified common sense? Sanctified common sense is a term that I occasionally do see in, in 19th century evangelical Sunday school and missionary uh, publications. I don't know how widespread it was, but it comes from this concept of common sense that was wildly popular in the U.S. in the 18th and 19th centuries. And it's this expectation that your common person basically sees reality more or less as it is. You don't need to have a fancy education uh, to be fit to vote, for instance. So sanctified common sense is builds another layer on top of that, that this person with their, with their common man common sense is a sincere believer in Jesus and therefore has experienced some sort of transformation as part of that relationship that makes their common sense even more accurate. So that's the sanctified part. Yes. Before we go to that, I, I do want to drill in on that sanctified bit, but mm -hmm. I, there's actually an interesting kind of point along the way there. You're talking about how this enlightenment idea of common sense, uh, how it related to voting, right? So at the beginning, anyway, any land holding white male, whether or not they are educated, right? So we don't care if they're educated, they do need to be a landowner and they do need to be a yes. white man. But that would have been inherited anyway. And the new part was any of those people can vote, not just people born into high families or whatever. Um, you can already tell how American this is, right? This is this is in our blood. 
That is interesting because it is a different explanation for democracy than I think has become more popular in the 20th century, looking back at the founders, which was – the one that I got was something more like the reason we have democracy is not because the common people see everything. It's more because that keeps elites from messing with the common people too much. So it's a check on their power that if they go too far, some large enough percentage of people will recognize that it's hurting them and will vote them out. But that's a different mechanism, right? That's a that's actually a very different argument. They they only have to see the world clear enough to know that it's screwing them over. They don't right. need to actually sort of understand the mechanisms of government. And and maybe as the world got more and more complex, we've got atomic weapons, we've got the Cold War and international diplomacy, we've got all these things that are undeniably complex. We're no longer saying the average person gets them. We're going to start saying the average person at least understands their own interests well enough to vote someone out that's against their interests. Uh, right. I don't know if you've thought about these two sort of arguments for that, but I, that's, I noticed that as you were speaking. Yeah, it it doesn't start out with this hyperconfidence that we see all of reality. But it is an attempt to widen the scope of enlightenment access to what I call a magic knowledge receptor. <laughs> oh, I got I might have to add I, I might need to add this in. Is this a capital M N? Oh, Are? yes. Okay. Capitalize all of it. Yeah. Magic knowledge receptor. I've, I've been using this for a few years. And, you know, evangelicals are not the only ones that do this. One of the things that I think is very important for the people that are starting to deconstruct for the first time to understand is that just because they leave evangelicalism doesn't mean that the problems <laughs> and, and the vices that have deformed American evangelicalism. It doesn't mean that they've left those things. Those things have still shaped us. And those things are also part of the wider American culture. Yeah. Um, so this hyperconfidence that there is some capacity in us that basically just receives reality as it is. Mm. Um, people will use different terms for this based on their group. So my magic knowledge receptor might be reason. But it also might be intuition or authenticity. Mm. Common sense is a big one. You'll still see this more among conservatives. They'll talk about common sense and reason. Progressives will sometimes talk about reason as well. Empathy, huge one on the left. Empathy is a magic knowledge receptor. Empathy is a magic knowledge receptor. It's this capacity we have to access reality and to relate properly to reality. Um, so if you, if you, if you, if you go on the NPR website and pop in empathy as a, as a search term and look at how the word functions, empathy is going to save us all. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we, th we tend to think of the enlightenment as rooted in reason, but there's different enlightenments and they all go back to this idea that we have some sort of internal internal knowledge receptor that corresponds to the structure of reality. And this is actually this actually goes much further back. This goes back to Greco-Roman philosophy and the idea of the spermaticus lagas, that you have this bit of fire in you that is made of the essence of God that makes us capable of reason and speech. Mm. Yeah, I was I was thinking Plato and Socrates and 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 just how basically through the work of philosophy, which was a lot more of a kind of uh, – it was closer to what we would consider like 
you know, people following a rabbi or, or monks following mm-hmm. a, a religious leader, you could open yourself up to the forms. But yes. but you've got something in you that lets you see that stuff for what it really is in, in you know, and that would be a little different than what we're talking about in sort of more modern Western culture where we think we can do it immediately. They yes. would put a lot of work into doing that, but they yes. did think there was something in them that, that led to that. Yeah, their understanding of whether your intellect could harmonize with the structure of the cosmos was much more contemplative and it was much more character based. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't do that if you were a vicious person, right. <laughs> you know, and by vicious, I mean, like if your character was uh, shaped by it was characterized by vices, uh, right. you had to be a virtuous person. So you're right that when this pops up in the modern period, eventually what it becomes is this confidence that the person that I am now can see reality well enough, more or less as it is. This is, oh gosh. First of all, take me back to Aristotelian days and when it comes to this question. I'm far more convinced that it takes virtue and, and good habits and, and whatever to see the world clearly. But just a, a quick application in talking with people, you know, I'm, I'm training to be a therapist and having conversations, especially with friends around like boundaries with with, you know, immature parents or other people in one's life. And some of these people, especially if they are evangelicals and highly steeped in this world, mm. they really do see the world quite poorly. I mean, I think, and right. they are convinced that they see it through God's eyes. And so yes. to say, hey, I have a boundary or I'd like you to join me in therapy or whatever. If they're not into it, it's like, why are you going against God? I see the world. And then the the person, my friend or whatever is is left there going, I, I, I'm pretty sure you don't. You know, I'm pretty sure you it, but it's it it becomes a kind of a non-starter because it's so. Uh, this is what I love about what you're what you're doing. It's so deep. It's about what we see and how we know it and how much confidence we have. And if the stakes are so high, as you said, if God's going to get mad at us if we don't police the fort, and if some like if somebody seems to have an interesting or intriguing idea, well, they might be deceiving us. That might be the enemy. Because Satan masquerades as an angel of light, Dan. Exactly. And the heart is <laughs> yeah. deceitful above all things. So yes. those things keep from engagement with some other way of knowing or some other facts or something like that. And it, it becomes a, almost intractable. Right. So with sanctified common sense, because it it encourages us to be extremely confident in our capacity to view scripture according to some sort of plain meaning and see all of reality as it is, because we have sincere faith, it makes it very difficult for us to learn and to troubleshoot our practices. So it collapses maturity to what people in power in a particular community can achieve. Hmm. Because if you can, if you basically have everything you need right now to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Your perception is only going to be as good as your current level of maturity. Right. Um, will, you, so, will, you actually, will you say that again about it yeah. collapses what can be done into what can – apologies yeah. if I'm saying this wrong. Sure. What can be done by those currently in power? That yeah. that phrase jumped out to me. Sure. It made It made me think of the John MacArthur's and John Piper's oh. of the world. It's like basically if those guys – 
can't sort it out, then no one can. So we'll just we'll just keep the same authorities. We'll just go back to the Wayne Grudem systematic theology book like we don't need a new one. That's that's where I went. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. All right. Actually, why don't we go ahead and talk about sincerity culture? Great. That's where we're going to go next. Then we'll build up to that. All right. So sincerity culture is this over evaluation of our own sincerity. So because of how we talk about faith, you know, faith is this is this means of salvation. How do you know if you have faith? You know, well, what do we have faith in? We have faith in Jesus as revealed in scripture. So how do I know if I mean it enough? Right. You, of course, get confirmation from the people around you that telling you that that are telling you that you're either doing it right or not. But if you if you have the correct beliefs and you mean them as hard as you can, that's got to be it. Right, because there's no external marker. It literally, yeah. uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Okay, so I can't look at the outward appearance, yeah. but God looks at the heart. And so how do I know what God's seeing? Sincerity, in your view, basically does that work for me? Well, I really yeah. mean it. Yeah, uh, it's an intensifier of faith. The inner witness of our own sincerity tends to be treated as a stand-in for the Holy Spirit or as evidence that the Spirit is working, as long as your sincerity is directed towards the right Bible facts. Right. So when, uh, for instance, this this makes sense of the critiques on sites like the Gospel Coalition and others Mm -hmm. of these kind of deconstruction journeys and like the interviews that, you know, Pete Enns will have or... Rachel Held Evans, uh, while she was with us, that, well, these people are following some kind of a journey, sure, but we're not going to count that sincerity as authentic, right? So their authenticity doesn't matter because it's not sincerity toward the right Bible truths. Exactly. It's some other kind of more nebulous Oprah-like sincerity, like true to yourself, air quotes. And for someone in this world, being true to oneself is bullshit. It's worthless. True to yourself is true to the Bible truths. That's what true to yourself is. That's what God wants from us. Anything else is a potential deceiver to take us off of that path. Right. And it's important to recognize that these concerns – do make a lot of sense if you look at the historical enemies of evangelicalism. You know, the, if you look at like New England transcendentalism in the 19th century, you know, that's where a lot of our modern concept of spirituality develops. And there is this hyperconfidence in, in what has become a more progressive knowledge receptor. Interesting. That my authenticity gives me access to the ground of reality. And there is just as there is a lack of awareness within fundamentalism that our cultural location shapes our interpretations, shapes our desires, you know, shapes everything about how we interpret reality. There can be a naivety on the other side in progressivism that assumes that if I am authentic enough, I'm going to more or less see reality as it is. And the problem is these other people. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, it is its own kind of there's a there's a kind of secular sanctified common sense or, yeah, new age, new age transcendentalist sanctified common sense. That's so interesting. Although, I don't know, can we do a couple minutes on 
if we had to choose, but I don't think we should have to choose between one of those two. But if we had to, I might still choose the the secular version because sure. at, at least it's got fewer pre-commitments to it or something like that. I don't know that it does hmm. um, because you're always going to end up expressing this and exploring this through communities that are helping you narrate it. Right. All right. So there, are, there, the commitment to individualism is very strong there. Right. Just as it is in its own way in fundamentalism. Because again, I am only contracting in fellowship with other Christians that see reality based on the same firm foundations of their sanctified common sense. Right. And they're coming to the same conclusions that I am. You know, ultimately something within us is the guarantor of reality. Yeah, that's so interesting. I want to I want to spend a minute on that bit. I just want to concretize this a little bit here. So sure. I know people like this. Mostly I'm thinking of friends, parents, right, who are really steeped in this world, this evangelical world. And yeah, they really do only some of them have a very hard time interacting with anybody, family mm-hmm. members or outside who don't have not come to the same conclusions with their sanctified common sense about the world. And they might even distinguish between friends and those with whom they fellowship. Right. They could have a friend who's not a Christian, but there's a real hard line there because anything that a friend brings to the table is going to be suspect if it doesn't line up with the the, uh, Bible truths all agreed upon with our sanctified common sense uh, in our little community, right? Right. I mean, these are questions that everybody goes through in terms of who can we trust? Sure. Who can we let in to shape us? Yeah. And that's where that's that's why this is basically a conversation about epistemology, right? And yes. And one thing that I've noticed change in myself over time is I've had a drastic change in the type of qualifications that it takes for me to trust someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give an example. Um, in more in more sociopolitical terms, and this is where I know that I diverge from a lot of my listeners, but when I start to pick up a real strong activist vibe from a thinker, I start to discount them. And that is because of, you know, various understandings I've come to about political and moral psychology and the extent to which I think this person might be in an echo chamber. And therefore, if they can't tell that they're in an echo chamber, then I what else can't they tell? And uh, how much are they discounting the views of those with whom they disagree? And so they drop in my estimation. But that would be different than how I was raised. What I was raised with was if I can tell that someone's really on fire for the Lord, for instance, then I will take them more seriously. And really on fire for the Lord is just like a religious version of political activism. That's a a very similar type of quality. Mm -hmm. So I've actually come – to discount the quality that I was raised to really value um, in a person. It sounds like your concern with both groups is in this expectation that our zealous attachment and affirmation of true things should transform the world if we tell other people about it. Mm. So you don't actually have to know how to do anything. (laughs) You just have to believe the true things. And be willing to tell other people about it. It doesn't. That doesn't tell us anything necessarily about your character, 
or how you came to believe those things or how you behave differently as a result of your beliefs. And it, it doesn't tell us whether you're somebody that can help. Hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's the great danger with people that are very wounded by fundamentalism is they have the same extreme needs for self-protection um, from authoritarian intrusion as their fundamentalist parents and communities that they're reacting against. And so there can be a sort of recreation of, of purity culture in progressivism and this endless need to police the to, boundaries, to police the boundaries and to go after people that disagree with you. It, it doesn't make us into people that can build a better world. It doesn't right. mean that we are now people that can help because now we are really people that see. We, we are people that now really see the true things and mean them so hard. Because uh, when knowledge is really easy and everybody has access to it and you share the true thing with somebody that is in darkness and they don't see it, it doesn't land, then what can you do? What's left? Because <laughs> they should, like, if their magic knowledge receptor is working properly, they should just be able to receive the truth right now as it is, whether they trust you or not. And they should be, they should trust you because look at how sincere you are. <laughs> I wonder, can we apply this lens of what we're talking about here to, uh, it's always hard to know what word to use, but let's just call it like highly active, woke social media posting, you know, uh, the person who is posting two to five stories a day on racial justice and has been consistently since George Floyd's death. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with that, but there's often a disconnect. And, and I'm actually starting to see some really interesting conversations around this coming from, for instance, the black community on the difference between a white ally, quote unquote, that just posts a lot on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook versus like the kind of actual sacrifices that many uh, white people should be need to be willing to make for things to change. Right. So my favorite example is always public school funding. Very, very hard to get largely white neighborhoods with very well-funded public schools for their children to be willing to vote for any kind of thing that would share that funding and have it less linked to property taxes. Right. right. Then all of a sudden. So I don't – my guess is that the vast majority of people who are doing these postings that have children in public schools are not also advocating for or voting for measures that would reduce their child's school's funding. Yeah. Uh, they're – you know, they're, they're not – anything that I have ever posted about racial justice – and I post less than the type of person I'm describing, but I post about it. None of those posts have cost me one dollar or one iota of my own privilege. I still post about them sometimes because I get emotional and I want to express myself and that's a good human thing to do. But there's some, I think that what you're talking about is a possible lens to look at this where it's like, it's a similar perspective right. as the fundamentalist evangelical, like, here's the truth. I see it. Why can't you see it? And that's the main thing is right. the, is the truths that we obviously see. Yeah, that when our consciousness is transformed and we all believe the true things with all of our authenticity and sincerity, when enough people when enough people believe the true things, the world will transform on its own. It's this it's this idea that society is a is an aggregate of individuals and their beliefs. Mm -hmm. And to get people to share posts, 
you know, isn't that hard? But like you said, to get people to actually do the unsexy work behind the scenes of shifting systems, you know, that's way more difficult than, than people proclaiming their sincere beliefs, which may be true and helpful, but the transformation of knowledge does not in and of itself lead to transformation of character or of our patterns of living in the world. Right. It's not, it's not nothing though, right? It's not completely unrelated. Like I think about climate change, for instance. So the, the opinion on climate change is shifting and it's shifting more and more towards people realizing it's a bigger and bigger deal. And it is true that if let's say 80, at some point, 80% of Americans understand that there is a lethal threat 20 years down the road for billions of people, then that will have effects on on policy. It will have some effects, right? It's not unrelated, but it isn't maybe the quickest way to getting the kind of policies we need at the governmental level, nationally and internationally, to reduce carbon emissions. Right. And part of the danger of being formed in a culture, and this is not just evangelicalism, this is really all of white America, uh, in which we are encouraged to be incredibly overconfident about our ability to see reality is that we tend not to slow down and learn from authority. Hmm. Like we tend not to slow down and look at, okay, who's been actually doing the work already and how can I learn how to support that? Because if you already see clearly, then you're only going to pay attention to the options that are currently on your radar. Well, what if, what if some of the more helpful stuff is not stuff that you would know how to look for? Hmm. Well, that's just uh, – that one just seems to be kind of a human problem to me. I mean – It's a human problem, but we institutionalize it pretty badly. Hmm. It's, it's more – it's a bigger problem for American individualists than, than other folks yes. maybe. Yeah. yeah. There, there are cultures that can take this into account and can train people to be humble and to be aware that we have to learn from people that know how to do things. Right. Right. And that the marker of whether there's somebody we should listen to is not just whether th- do they believe the correct things, but yes. what difference does this make in their actions and what effects do their actions have in the world? So part of the challenge with this, with sanctified common sense and with sincerity culture and evangelicalism is that it collapses the ceiling of maturity to what people within the community can achieve, which is usually just being white middle-class employed, vaguely genial. <laughs> You're, you are allowed to be angry if it's against liberals, but just basically pleasant. Like you don't have to necessarily know how to do anything else in the world hmm. other than what your average Joe can do. That is so interesting. I, I'm sitting here, you know, obviously not an expert on this, but I, I want to try contrasting it with like the black church Yes, And how in that community, my sense is that pastors and other community leaders of any kind are tested by their actions more, maybe because it's a natural result of those actions being more needed in a poorer society, in a, in a, more, in a society that has to be more tight-knit and take care of each other because the larger systems are not sort of for them, right? So right. It, I don't get the sense that there's so much – emphasis on ideological purity in in the black community and you know I'm not in the black community but that's I feel like that there's something to that 
Uh, do you sure. have any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I think it would depend on the Black church tradition and on the local congregation. So there's a lot of diversity under that umbrella. I see what you're talking about, and I think it does have to do with the greater awareness of interdependence and a greater valuation of wisdom. Mm. So if wisdom is not just propositions and sincerity, then you do have to care about, like, (laughs) does this person know how to take care of the sick? Do they right. know what to do if somebody dies? Do they know how to pray for you when you're in your deepest pain? Oh. And, and also there tends to be more of a vetting system within cultures that have a strong valuation of wisdom. So you apprentice people. So before, before they turn you loose to pray over somebody, you know, you've got to be standing next to the deaconess for 10 years while she prays. And, and, and sometimes she prays for you. And then through that process of being prayed for and observing wise, mature people pray, you learn what to do and not, not to do. I've been thinking about wisdom traditions a lot recently and, and thinking of them in terms of human evolution, mm-hmm. mo- I guess mostly cultural evolution, not, not sort of like pre, pre-biological humans, but we've been biologically human for about 200,000 years. And thinking about wisdom traditions in the context of survival and how in a situation like that, you when your life is so much more precarious, your tribe safety and provision is so much more precarious, the wisdom of the ages over time is just – you know, it's true that today a stupid teenager who doesn't listen to elders can get in a drunk driving car accident and they can die. But a lot of times they don't die because uh, cars are very safe and there are a lot of buffers to learn from one's mistakes. If you drink too much and you have to have your stomach pumped at a party, well, most people don't die from that. They get their stomach pumped or, you know, the 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 old gag of like, I can't drink tequila because, man, the first time I got really wasted was on tequila and now it makes me sick or whatever. You, know, I used to hear that one in my 20s from people all the time. There are so many more buffers around making mistakes as a young person now. But if you're a Maori tribesman, you know, in in 1150 uh, or something, die. you're just going <laughs> to die. And, and you might even ki- get your family killed, right? Because you might let in a wild boar that doesn't only gore your stomach, but gores your sister's stomach. And like the need for wisdom when survival is much more precarious. If that's true, then you take a poor community versus a wealthy community. And of course, you it's still safer maybe than it was to be alive in 30,000 BC. But in a poor community, it's not as safe as it is in my community. And the wisdom there is going to be more valuable. And, and we sort of lose something. Um, we certainly lose something epistemologically mm-hmm. by not needing the wisdom tradition so much. Sure. Uh, because – our technocratic solutions are are sort of buffering things for us. Well, I would say that these common sense cultures that give us this overconfidence in our immediate ability to perceive reality if we are sincerely believing the right things, that is a type of tradition. Mm. And it's not a fruitful wisdom, but but it is an attempt to guard people from error. It's not a successful one. Yes. Oh, you're right. Um, the, but it's yeah. it's exactly the same motivation, right? Yeah. 
but maybe we might say the dangers are less about physical survival and they are about spiritual survival. You said yes. earlier, stakes are high. God could get mad at us. We could be out. We could be the goats in hell and someone's yeah. going to get one over on us. And so we mm-hmm. take – it's possibly – I mean psychologically speaking, it's probably the same module that we use to keep our tribe away from wolves and other warring tribes and extreme weather. But we're just now applying it to Satan and hell and the forces of evil. Well, and and you have to have a very – you have to have a narrative about why other people don't see the same thing. Hmm. So you have to have a pretty defi- pretty strong sense of enemy, even if you wouldn't use that term. You have to have, you have, to have some scapegoats. Mm-hmm. Here's a different way to put this. If knowledge is easy – and somebody refuses to receive what the the true thing that I sincerely tell them. What is wrong with them? Hmm. They must be particularly bad, or they're just not elect. Yeah, those are your two options, and depending on your theology, you yeah. might lean one way or the other, right? Right. But what do you where where do you go from there? I mean, you get to write that person off. Or eventually just alienate the relationship because you're not actually forming trust with them. They're not going to trust you any more than they t- than you trust them. This is what's so sad about this to me. And I would include the kind of progressive fundamentalist mindset that we've been talking about as well, that we have evolved these modules for protection and they have worked because we're here, Right. But they're just not true anymore. It is not true. I I believe it is not true that the person who leaves fundamentalism for some other pasture is is dead to God and in danger of bringing souls to hell with them. Mm -hmm. And so it's sad to have this system, uh, this way of being and moving around in the world lead to so many broken relationships, chances that people could still be close to each other. Yeah. And one of the things I appreciate about your podcast is that you are so careful to honor that people in these systems are not cartoon villains that are, Mm -hmm. you know, that know that they're deceived, you know, that know these things aren't true and are just, you know, lording their power over people like that's really not what it's like for most people in those worlds people are trying to do the best that they can and they're trying to be faithful and there's often a misplaced integrity and it can be very hard to sort through what is really jesus because it's not it doesn't it's not like people don't know jesus (laughs) like jesus still shows up in all sorts of places where people don't have great doctrine and don't have great practice right Totally. And if we associate the work of Jesus, you know, things that we know are him, if we associate that work with the structures of the community that we're in, then it, then it feels like we're being disloyal to Jesus if we start to push back against these structures, particularly if these structures say you can't have access to Jesus unless you believe it exactly this way, because the Bible clearly says this. Right. So part of what happens is the world becomes very small. If we are really confident that the people that we are now at our current level of maturity can access reality as it is, because, because 
the goal is not to let anything in that can harm us. That's a good goal. But do we actually have the wisdom to discern what is and is not helpful or harmful? You know, a lot of our strategies to protect ourselves actually let harmful things in and keep helpful things out. So we all build these walls. But when we think we see reality as it is already, then you don't have to care about history because anybody with sanctified common sense in history, of course, saw things the way that I do. That is how we can so easily say it's just the early church and then fast forward to us in 2020 in our Bible church. Exactly. Well, and that's why that's why you have to have a strong anti-Catholic polemic and a lot of fundamentalism. <laughs> right. Because you have to take out 1,500 years of church history. You have yeah. to basically – or uh, 1,200, whatever you want to call it. You have to really discount those 1,200 years there or else your story doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Well, either the church had to just be uniformly cartoonishly bad in keeping people from scripture because if people had scripture, all the sincere people would have seen what we see, you know, or everybody ignores the fact that they just weren't literate. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You have to be literate. We didn't Um, have a printing press yet. You know, that's a better (laughs) explanation. But yeah. Yeah. Or there is just something so wrongheaded and obtuse about Catholics who now have access to scripture, but don't see what we see. Right. You have to have some sort of other that is willfully blind and obtuse to the truth. So, and it's, it is really true that we can deceive ourselves, you know, and we, there's no, there's no part of our perception that is not agenda laden. We all have a way we need the story to turn out. Yeah. Um, so part of what happens, I think if you, if you've been in a community that oversimplifies knowledge and growth, and you've been invested in this for all of your adult life and your kids are growing up and they start to express some resistance to what you believe, you know, or, or the kids are not all right. You know, the kids are struggling. The kids are drinking. The kids are having sex. The kids have eating disorders. You know, the kids are not flourishing. What do you do? Because if knowledge is easy, think how shameful it is to get it wrong. Right. And where do you go from there? It explains why often the behavior is just like copious Facebook article forwards and email forwards, because what's needed is not on this view, a conversation to meet as equals, to parse out ideas, to to be curious about each other. That's not what you need. Like, look, it's not this stuff's not hard, kids. You were raised with the truth. Mm-hmm. It's easy to see it. I'm going to forward you emails that explain it again. Right. And that should do it. There, there's not yeah. really anything else that needs to be done. One more John Piper sermon should take care of it. Right. Yeah, because growth is really easy. So you never actually have to experience transformation mm-hmm. as long as you agree that the sins that you're struggling with are bad mm-hmm. and periodically rededicate your life or – or do whatever, you know, as long as you continue to believe the right things. If, if you never overcome the things that you're enslaved to, you're still basically fine. Um, and that will be narrated as some things just don't get better until we go to heaven. Which is not like, we understand how those 
habits develop because in growth, there is often a process. And there can be times where it doesn't feel like we're getting better. But, you know, when you when you get to adulthood and you look around your church community and nobody is getting better <laughs> or or no or, or the people that do seem to be getting better, they can't tell you why they were getting better or what you can do to also get better in any sort of helpful way, which doesn't mean that there isn't real growth happening, because, again, Jesus is showing up. Of course. Yeah. But the way that we narrate our growth and our freedom, you know, will often be through these testimony tropes. So I I just finally trusted God enough and hated my sin enough. It's sincerity culture. I got better. Yeah. Right. So another one of your terms that relates to sincerity culture is evangelical insta trust. Um, And I feel like we've been dancing around this, but can you define Mm -hmm. that? Please. Yeah, evangelical instatrust is this expectation that people who don't know us, don't know our characters, have no experience of us, should just go ahead and trust us. They should let us into their lives. They should divulge personal details about themselves. They, they should let us speak into their struggles. Um, I mean, I've, I've been in church communities where they have used the phrase uh, trust is given. It's not earned. Where does this come from? Like, like what's the motivation behind this assumption? Well, I think it's the assumption that if I am an authority in the church, my character has already been vetted, which that would be nice if that were true. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But it's, it's not often the case Uh, or sorry. The, the standards of vetting are only going to be as good as the standard of maturity in the community. Right. And if anybody can get a maturity badge, if they believe the true Bible facts with an appropriate amount of earnestness at around the age of 25, then, that, then that's not a great vetting system. Yeah, it's so interesting. It, it That does kind of tie in with the low church approach and the not necessarily seminary needed and – you know, this this kind of idea that which which I always defend on its yeah. merits because, yeah, we don't just need elites all the time. Like that's not what everybody always needs. And we need pastors who are just like regular Joes, Joes and Janes, and that can relate to those people and help them flourish and, and get through life. Yeah. With them. I mean, ideal, ideally, our elders should be wise and mature people with a track record of fruit, fruit and growth who have great practices and really rich descriptions of those practices. But if you have to choose between a good practitioner and a good theorist, I will take a good practitioner every time. Yeah. I, I care much more about what you do than about your ability to describe it. If you'd like to support this show financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Patrons get access to the patron only Facebook group, as well as at least two exclusive episodes every month. The most recent episode is a real humdinger, as they say in baseball, my favorite sport. And yes, my San Francisco Giants are doing quite nicely this season. Thank you very much. Best record in baseball as of this taping. And I wish that those pesky cheating Dodgers would slow their roll and get comfortably into second place. 
in the NL West. Anyways, uh, the most recent episode is with Josh Gilbert, my editor and sometimes co-producer here, about the... Uh, it's, it's kind of a deep dive. It's the first significant dive into the results of my big... Uh, spiritual abuse survey that I ran earlier this year. I had to wait until a couple institutional checks were done before I could talk about it. And those have been done so I can talk about it now. And we get into it. We spend 90 minutes talking about it. So uh, I've had people, uh, patrons have described it as both uh, fantastic and depressing. (laughs) Hopefully it's both. Um, Hopefully it's good work. A lot of it is depressing, but it's also quite interesting. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in that data. I'm only beginning to unpack it. Uh, But if you want to hear that episode, you should become a patron. And you can also listen to all the other previous exclusive episodes for patrons once you sign up. And if you are a patron and your spouse would like to join the Facebook group, they are welcome. Uh, There is a button you can click when you request uh, permission to join that says my spouse is a patron. Just select that. Okay, patreon.com slash Dan Coke. And yes, this is another of those Havana Swim Club tracks. It's called For Blake. It is dedicated to Blake Beaver, um, the recently passed member of our group, who was very important, especially in that Facebook group. Blake, we miss you. Uh, We hope that in some way you are listening and that you dig this song. Taking this evangelical insta trust to the to the uh, I, I I pick on boomers so much, but you know the email forwards or the or mm-hmm. the Facebook video forwarding in the messenger app, you know, or whatever these 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 sort of missiles shot back at the younger folks. Th- th- that's not the only version of of what we're talking about, but that's just the one I I tend to mm-hmm. think of because it's so common these days. Especially with such an emerging divide along generational lines around anything sociopolitical or theological. Mm -hmm. And especially the theology around the sociopolitical issues like homosexuality, climate change, whatever. So how does evangelical insta-trust play into the email forwarding, right? Is it like, look, I'm your uncle or I'm your insert family friend or family member here like, and I've been in a church for 20 years. And and so, like, what I forward is true. Like, is, is that kind of how it's operating? I mean, there's certainly the expectation that they should be trusted and that they have some sort of authority there because the community has often explicitly given them authority or tacitly given them authority. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you get the maturity badge, if you were treated like a wise elder – whether you actually are or not, uh, you know, there's this incredible sense of pseudo dignity that we can get from that. You know, that's a really nice, comfortable world to be in. You know, the world is explainable and small and I'm a master of it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know everything that I need to know. So again, it's, it's this idea that if I sincerely believe true things and I share them with you, you should be able to receive them. Let's say the the child or nephew or niece or, you know, whoever the person is, the grandkid, the, let's say they send something back. 
mm-hmm. right? And they send back a counterargument or something. What does the elder how how do they interpret the response that they got? Is it that the younger person has not earned the membership, the maturity badge, the insta trust badge, and so that's why the counter argument like what percentage of it and that percentage you can't say <laughs> but how much of it is that how much of it is this like fear about the stakes being high and god being displeased or or being deceived you know like how do you think about those two those seem mm-hmm. like two two possible factors here both of which are within your sort of view uh, sure. but but separable from each other so i think by the time someone is sending out the John MacArthur or John Piper sermon emails, the person to whom the email is addressed is already outside the circle of trust. Yes. Yeah. They are already, they are already seen as, as deficient somehow in their faith. So you, the most common explanation for why someone has stopped trusting the beliefs of their evangelical or fundamentalist elders is that they have been led away by their feelings into liberalism and, or they just love their sin. Yeah. It's either they want to not stop sinning or yeah, they have caved to culture, liberal culture. Yeah. Well, the, the feelings thing is really big. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, or fe- yeah, I guess feelings I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm counting feelings under caved to culture. Sure. Uh, because you could, describe caving to culture as a purely intellectual exercise or a purely peer pressure exercise or whatever, but tied up with liberal culture is a feelings culture. And so part and parcel of caving to culture is giving into your feelings, not just doing what's expected of you by your liberal peers. Yeah. Evangelicals and fundamentalists tend, depending on the stream, it really does vary. I would say evangelicals that are more formed by fundamentalism tend to have this hyper-confidence about their minds, Hmm. that somehow their minds are less deformed by sin than their feelings. Sometimes they'll space that out with, you know, mind versus heart. It really, and, and most people are not stable in their scriptural interpretations here. But in the 19th century, we increasingly began to associate heart in English with feelings and to break that up with mind as brain and to treat those in opposition. And right. that goes back to some older Platonic oppositions, but we read that back onto scripture. So right. in the 19th century, you'll start to see readings of Jeremiah with the heart is deceitful above all things to police people that are talking about their feelings where you wouldn't have necessarily seen that before, right. you know, there, the, the anthropology was more unified. So if you have a problem with your feelings, you also have a feel a problem with your mind. Hmm. Um, so you get, you start to get these extreme reactions back and forth, but people disagreeing with sanctified common sense, which is of course, sincerely aligned with the Bible facts is evidence that they must be deceived by their feelings Right. Which, of course, you never have to listen to. Right. Once you Feel- made feelings that. Will de- feelings will deceive you. Right. But that also lets the people in power in communities baptize their own anxieties um, as discernment. Oh, my gosh. They baptize their own anxieties as discernment. Yeah. Heather. 
Whoo. That's a phrase. Yeah. I mean, underline that one. Think of the gatekeeping that goes on where Albert Moeller sternly will take any, any Christian view that he disagrees with and say, did God really say, you know, as if this is, this is, we're about to go down the slippery slope. Yep. You know, there's this way of talking about outsiders as liberals and people that are no longer one of us. And maybe we're never really one of us. And so you learn from, you learn through this repeated Pavlonian training and a lot of evangelicalism to dread ever getting anything wrong doctrinally to ever disagree with the scriptural reading of your elders, which of course is not an interpretation. It's just what the Bible says, because you know how you'll be talked about. Mm -hmm. And again, the stakes are so high Yep. because they're going to hell as eternal conscious torment as plainly seen in scripture. (laughs) Um, Right. So for, for me, that feeling lives in my gut the type of anxiety and a fear that was instilled in me of, of, of being a liberal was the term that was uh, most frequently assigned to it. And so that made me afraid of asking certain types of questions. And I was not around mean people. I was around really kind people that absolutely meant well. That's my story too. Yeah. Yeah. They were trying to help me. I couldn't admit to myself that I was really a liberal Christian until I started contemplative practice and that direct experience of the joy and peace of God flooding me in prayer, in meditation was the necessary thing I needed to be able to admit that like, yeah, I'm theologically liberal. Like I am a, in the classic sense of it, I'm a liberal Christian. Before that I was like, well, I'm a Christian who just, I've thought about hell a little differently or I, I think maybe I'm thinking about gay questions differently or, you know, uh, maybe I don't need inerrancy quite the same, like, or a progressive revelation that will solve my Canaanite problem. And then once I, once I felt so assured of God's acceptance of me, because why would, why would I have that feeling? Why would God give me that feeling commensurate with these intuitions, these theological intuitions, if those were going to send me to hell, that doesn't make any sense. And then I finally was able to go, oh, okay, this is who I am. So I'll just do this well and I'll be open to arguments, but I can admit it now. But it was, it's kind of surprising to me now how long that took mm-hmm. to admit that because this anxiety was by, again, generally good people. Uh, mm-hmm. And I I had very few nutcases in my life, um, handful, and they were mostly in school and not church. But it just – it goes so deep. They, that, that implicit anxious message is communicated about as well as anything is ever communicated to anybody. Yeah. You know? It is a very successful shaping of the affections. Yeah. I was thinking another example, you mentioned Albert Moeller, uh, but also all of this stuff around Alyssa Childers and other people's emerging careers on warning signs that your church is becoming progressive. Um, How funny. That feels like a perfect example of baptizing their own anxieties as discernment, as spiritual discernment, because it's interesting. That stuff only works for people because they all already agree. Yeah. 
right? Because they don't really have an argument. There's the there's never an argument about the truth claims. They don't ever say something like, here's why progressive Christians are wrong from anything other than they have a couple things. They have they can quote verses, mm-hmm. they can talk about church history, and they can quote previous Christian thinkers that are approved within whatever circle they're in. Yeah, fairly they, selectively. <laughs> yeah, fairly selectively. Uh, everybody loves Augustine. <laughs> he seems to be – everybody can appeal to Augustine. Some people Aquinas, other people Calvin, you know, whatever. But like there's never an argument of like on the – other than maybe like a William, like a, an apologist like a William Lane Craig who's arguing for something a lot less specific than mm-hmm. these more evangelical leaders are arguing for. There's never an argument about the data or like the scientific facts or a philosophical argument. It's just an appeal to the text and to the history of the interpretation of that text. And that's kind of it. That's kind of the only it's really the only weapon they've got because it's really just about, I think, anxiety about getting it wrong and fear of God judging and fear of being led astray by things that are not approved within the sanctified common sense of these Bible truths that we all are sincere about. Well, and it's the goodness of God, it becomes bound up in our ability to see clearly. What do you mean by that? All right. In a lot of these traditions, there's charismatic versions of this that I feel less comfortable describing. I am a charismatic but I, I'm from an Anglican tradition, which doesn't look quite the same as, as Pentecostal traditions. Within most of the fundamentalist inflected forms of, of white evangelicalism that we see, they're cessationist. They don't believe that the Holy Spirit does much of anything other than help convict you of the truth of the Bible facts. Right, exactly. Right. So... If you if, if you have to if you're confronted with the prospect that you've gotten something significantly wrong and everybody that you trust and recognize as someone who also sincerely believes the Bible facts has also gotten this wrong, where do you go from there? Because the goodness of God is then at stake in that. What exactly like it's, it's not like people haven't meant it hard enough. They and often they have been doing the best they can the best they can to trust God and not trust what they see and not trust their own feelings and not trust the world. You know, they've been doing everything that people they trusted told them to do in the name of Jesus. And all of that made sense given what they believed and the options that were visible to them from their magical common sense. So if you've been doing that for 20 or 30 years and somebody tells you that you, that you may have gotten it wrong, the whole thing falls apart if you consider that. Mm-hmm. That's too scary. Yeah. Because what do you have to replace that with? When sincerity is the main mechanism, right? Sincere belief mm-hmm. of the Bible truths. It presents a particularly hard problem for people who have fallen away from the faith that you really thought were Christians at the time. Mm-hmm this becomes a particular anxiety, right? Like, how is this possible? Could I lose that sincerity? You know, like, how do you, how do you look at that phenomenon of anxiety about former Christians who've fallen away? Right. There's often not a lot 
of difference to distinguish between between your average gosh this i don't want to be a jerk tell me tell me if this sounds too harsh okay when we identify with somebody that is like us and then they change it's a threat to it's a threat to us yeah and especially against this context where you don't necessarily see a lot of transformation so if the standard of maturity in your community is to be sincere about the the right bible facts and and once you are sincere about the right bible facts and this manifests in your life as basic white middle class flourishing you know you have you have your suburban home you know you have your marriage you go on the occasional mission trip what else can be asked of you there's not like a whole lot of like chasing growth past that yeah, evangelicals do not become oblets of local monasteries and get a, a daily rule of life that they follow or they – you know, there, there's not – it's it's there's a low ceiling in a lot of these There's groups. a very low ceiling of maturity. Yeah. And so it's not unusual to be struggling with anxiety or depression or compulsive sexual behavior or drinking um, or struggle with eating disorders or just be in a lot of pain or – struggling with the effects of abuse and to be trying to follow Jesus, to be doing everything you've been told to do. And you can do this for decades. And you get to a point a lot of times in your thirties or forties where you look around and you realize like, I don't want to be like any of these people that are 10, 20 years older than I am. I don't want their marriage, (laughs) especially when you find out what their marriages are actually like. No, there's something like, that's not everybody in the church. There's usually one or two marriages that like are really solid and loving. But when you get to the point where like, you don't want to be like the leaders, you know, that starts lurking behind your head, you know, and then um, some other things tend to be going on there. A lot of people with kids are taught to narrate the stress of their marriage in their twenties and thirties when their kids are youngest. It's just a season. (laughs) Mm. And their marriage starts to take on a lot of wear and tear and, they're not growing the way they thought that they would be growing, even though everybody is sending in the message that you're doing everything right. So it's really scary when you get to that point, you start to see people fall away. Their marriages fall apart. They lose their faith. And these are often people that we were fairly close to. And what do you, what do you do with that? Because, you know, if, if you were actually close to this person and know some of their struggles, you probably identify with some of them. And there's just not the resources in the community to go there from there, to, to, to move on. So like, so if you're afraid of your doubts, cause you're thought, because you've been taught that doubt is bad and you've never been taught how to pray or connect to Jesus in those doubts. And you often don't want to pray because you think Jesus is mad at you. <laughs> um, you don't want to read scripture because Paul, Paul always sounds angry. What do you do? You know, it, it's not just that, that marriages fail or people fall away. It's you don't see them get better afterwards. Or when people do reconcile, it's often not in a healthy way. And you're like, ah, <laughs> this has been kind of papered over and rushed, you know. It would make sense that somebody in that low place, having seen that around them, 
they have a choice maybe. And it's not so simple, but you either expand things out. You break down some of those walls and you look to other ways of knowing, or you dig deeper into your sincere commitment to Bible truths and you become more of a zealot around that stuff. Well, and there can, there can often be very understandable reasons for that. Mm -hmm. Like, so a lot of the pushback against purity culture now does not tend to think, take into account how destructive their parents' sexual experiences were as boomers. Yeah. Oh, totally. (laughs) 60s and 70s sexual culture. uh, Yeah. Right. That's where it, that's why that generation was so receptive to purity culture because it seemed like the alternative. Of course, now we can say, well, there is another alternative, but at the time, yeah, it was like, you know, you read accounts of this too. Like there's really good accounts of this in like Annie Dillard's writing and, 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 nonfiction authors who are kind of that age mm-hmm. of like there became a culture, uh, especially on the left of just like so much drinking, so much sleeping around. And these are parents of children. And like, you know, they see some of that. She's maybe a mid like a, you know, that that kind of experience might be parents in the 50s and 60s and stuff. Right. And then they try and emulate something like that with the free love stuff and it doesn't work. You know, yeah. sexual communes d- were not uh, a stable force in society. Yeah. Uh, it did not work for 99% of people. Right. Yeah, and and yeah. so many women that were gaslit into sleeping with men in order to express their liberation. Right. Yeah. Oh, one of my favorite things to do is to look yeah. at the dudes in that archival footage of hippie of hippie love-ins and whatever, and be like 80% of those dudes just want to get laid and they are putting on bell bottoms and doing what they got to do to get laid. (laughs) I don't know what the motivations are for the women, but like I, and I, I think about that in terms of like ancient temple prostitution, religious things. It's like, man, these, these religious beliefs or cultural beliefs, I'm using big air quotes here are very convenient for these uh, libido-driven males, uh, having been one in my 20s, you know, in my late teens. Like, yeah, I'm sure a lot of ancient Greek men genuinely believed that they needed uh, Athena's help by having sex with a temple prostitute. I'm sure they were very, very devout, just like those hippie dudes in 1968. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a mixed bag. Most cultures outside of the West have tended to treat treat drugs and sex as a means of connecting with the spiritual realm. Mm-hmm. And people do have experiences that are not really nameable in just these sort of reductive terms of I only want to have sex. But I do think that's probably going on with some people. Um, yeah. Sorry, that was interesting. I don't know how we got off there. Oh, um, I, I took us yeah. off. <laughs> oh, no, no. To- I'm totally yeah. interested in how purity culture and, and, and reactions to it are. We're just going to keep the, pen- the pendulum, swinging, uh, pendulum swinging back and forth. Right. All right. So you're in fundamentalism. You see somebody you identify with fall away. You know, what do you do? Most people are just trying to hold on to Jesus in whatever way they can. And, and, you know, often people that leave are, are not 
instantly becoming healthy, flourishing people. And they're not necessarily becoming different sorts of people. They, have, they will often have all the vices that they accumulated within their fundamentalist formation and just have a different narrative attached to it. That's pretty common. <laughs> so a lot of the times people that are inside are recognizing this isn't healthy either. But everybody that they trust is, is telling them to interpret it this way. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not like other options are visible. There's often a binary choice here. I'm either an, an, a Bible-believing evangelical, which usually means some sort of fundamentalist evangelical tradition, right. or I'm a progressive liberal. Right. There's nothing else that is on the radar. And if you're, if you're confident that you see reality as it is, you're not going to ask yourself, what, what is it that I don't know how to see yet? Right. So we become open to different things I, through trust, either by trusting different types of people who embody a way of life that looks much more like Jesus, that we, that we already know, the Jesus that we already know and recognize, or we radically lose our trust with the people that we have submitted to in the past. Yeah. So we've got, we've got about 15, 20 minutes left. And I, there's a few more ideas that your lens, I think makes an interesting sense of. So I want to make sure we get those. The first of these is persecution. This is obviously a massive issue in American evangelicalism today. I grew up with it constantly. Mm -hmm. We're constantly under threat of persecution. They all feel persecuted now. Of course, this is nothing like the kind of persecution that has happened to Christians in other countries and right. still does sometimes, but it has so much power mm-hmm. culturally. How do you see this persecution complex, if we want to call it that? I think there's a few layers to that. Again, if knowledge is really easy, and I am somebody that sees because I believe all the correct scripture, I believe all the correct Bible facts, I believe them sincerely, and you should be able to see too. If I tell you the true thing and you refuse to, and you you not only refuse to see the true things, but you are moving, you're trying to order our society in ways that contradicts them, that's persecution. <laughs> so we tend to go really quickly to violence, either imagine violence against ourselves or legitimate violence against other people, because if someone won't see what's left you know you've got to you've got to defend yourself yeah you shake the dust off your sandals and you you set up the fortress yeah yeah but also the function of a lot of the treatment of outsiders is to keep out threats to one's identity so if there's not this huge distinctiveness between yourself and the people in the world because the standard of maturity is just to be white, middle class, and sincere. <laughs> you know, the only difference is your doctrine. You can't afford to be that close to your pagan neighbors hmm. that are also white, middle class, and sincere. And just not Christian. Right. You, you can't afford to see people getting better with therapy when you're not getting better from biblical counseling. <laughs> right. Right. You um, have to discount it. Yeah, you have to discount it. You have to have, and also, if you're not maturing, you know, if you're if you're not continuing to grow, 
in ways that are obvious to other people, in ways that actually make your faith compelling and draw people to you because you're like Jesus and people want to be around Jesus because he's yeah. amazing. If that's not happening, then there's no sense of move, moving forward in your own life. So to see yourself as persecuted does a, does a lot of work for you in terms of maintaining a self-image. If you're persecuted, you must be worth persecuting. You know, it must be because you're like Jesus and the light hates the darkness. That is a great little turn that by thinking of it as persecution, and by the way, you don't have to come up with this on your own. Sure. You see that a couple people around you are calling it persecution and you go, yes. and then you subconsciously go, oh, if it's persecution, then that is proof that I am sincerely holding on to the Bible facts. Yeah. Well, and also means I'm not the problem. Right. It's it's not that the world is rejecting me because I am unlike Jesus, despite sincerely believing it's because the Bible I'm facts. like Jesus. Yes. And, and imagine that you've been doing this for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Right. And maybe your children have fallen away. Maybe mm -hmm. your grandchildren have fallen away. That's got to be sad. That's got to be anxiety inducing. There are lots of, of fundamentalist churches in the country where their Bible, their, their Sunday schools basically function as places for people who have lost, whose, whose children have lost their faith to just be sad <laughs> and to get reassurance from each other that it's not their fault. Hmm. You know, it's just the world. It's just people were led away by liberals. Rather than, no, like I'm an emotionally immature person and I've been that way my entire life and I've hid behind the church and I have, I have selected for people that would treat me as if I were much more mature than I actually am. And my children were not interested in that. And because I associated that with Jesus, they're not interested in Jesus because they don't want to be like me. And I, and I keep telling people that I'm like Jesus. <laughs> People cannot deal with that level of shame. Like you can only, you can only handle shame if you've seen people come back from it and be restored and move on. Right. But if knowledge is really easy, it is really shameful to have gotten something wrong. You're either stupid or you're morally deficient. Or you're evil. Right. Yeah. Yep. So we end up being judged by those standards. Yeah. And if nobody in your community is is maturing in substantial ways, you don't have this pool of testimony from your wisdom tradition to deal with of like, yeah, so-and-so really had this big blind spot, but in their 50s, they really turned it around and repaired right. the relationship with their kids, and they're so much healthier now. That's pretty rare. Sometimes right. you see it, but it's, notice, it's notable because it's so rare. Because it's rare. And that's rare. sad. And you want to have a, a church community that yeah. – Ideally, that those are the testimonies as yes. opposed to every testimony being about when you became a Christian and then you learned the Bible truths and you sincerely believed them. Yeah. And then wh what do you need sanctification for? There are no real steps above that. So we just go, well, is your business flourishing? Do you have enough money to send your kids to college to yeah. own your home? OK, then I guess you got it. If you're white and middle class and married and financially stable and you right. believe the true Bible facts and sincerely, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's at hand, right. And why aren't people wanting to be like us? Something you said there made me want to transition into the next question, which is sure. what is the relationship between 
this way of being in the world and spiritual abuse. Uh, How do you think about that? Well, I think that it gives people overconfidence in their ability to assess what is going on in somebody's life and to help them move forward. So a lot, a lot that falls under the heading of spiritual abuse tends to be well-intentioned, but clueless. So there's a few, there's a few levels here. Let's start with well-intentioned, but clueless. With well-intentioned and clueless, you are somebody in leadership at a church and you may or may not have gotten seminary training, but even if you got seminary training, (laughs) they didn't teach you how to do pastoral care. Mm -hmm. And you should just be able to figure it out by knowing what is true in scripture and sincerely believing it and helping people apply that to their lives. So we do a lot of harm to people and double down on it by pushing through the boundaries in people's souls, like, and well beyond the level of trust we have actually earned with them. And sometimes this happens because we train people to open themselves up to anyone that seems sincere and is an authority. So that's a recipe for disaster. And a lot of harm can happen in those contexts. And I could see it why sometimes we would call that spiritual abuse, especially if, if you're not allowed to say, this is harmful. This actually was not helpful. This, this made things worse. If you're not allowed to say that because whatever spiritual advice was given was based on biblical truth, you know, then to, then to push back against that is to doubt the Bible rather than to say this was misapplied. <laughs> All right. So other aspects of spiritual abuse, it makes us really terrible judges of character. You know, there's this sort of stand up guy culture and a lot of fundamentalist shaped evangelicalism where any bro that earnestly believes the Bible facts and is sincere and claps you on the back <laughs> yeah, um, is is worth putting into leadership. And so you can mistake a, a fairly low level of charisma and earnestness for spiritual health. Right. And that's, that's part of how you get a predator <laughs> into leadership. You know, also like these traditions are not great at helping people deal with their emotional baggage because they're so dismissive of feelings and treat them with contempt a lot of the time. So you get people who are very gifted and may, may love Jesus, but they're just so damaged and they're, they're keeping themselves busy through ministry and avoiding dealing with their stuff. And, you know, where would they go to deal with their stuff anyway? (laughs) You know, they've exhausted the wisdom of the community, which is believe these things and believe them sincerely and tell other people about these things. And then if they do find a therapist and they start working on it, what people in therapy end up doing is talk about the work that they do in therapy because it has such self-evident value. I've been thinking recently that like flourishing is its own kind of proof. Oh, yes. Um, And so (laughs) – that person, that pastor does that. They start talking in that way. They start using some different words. All of a sudden, the congregation starts backing away. If they continue down that road, they will fire them and find a new pastor who doesn't talk mm-hmm. like that and make them think that maybe they have to go to therapy, which would contradict their entire uh, right. meaning system, right? Right. Well, their sense of dignity, their sense of safety. 
because if the world is overwhelming to you, it's really nice to hear that you already have arrived and that nobody should ask anything else of you. You already yep. have everything you need. So powerful. Yeah. So people can't deal with that shame. So it's not just the anxiety that we baptize as discernment. It's our own fear of shame. Well, I was just thinking about how one another angle here is the type of spiritual abuse that comes from the group. And that, uh, you know, being shunned or shamed by the group um, can easily come about if the group all sort of sees things the way you've described. And then you start going through something different. You start asking questions. Well, yeah, they're going to gaslight you. Yeah, they're going to shame you for asking questions because you're basically tugging at the threads of the entire thing. Yeah. And so then you're going to have that group harm and that group pressure. Well, it's so threatening because – People will persevere in these systems partly because they do know Jesus and Jesus is Jesus is really kind and shows up even if like we're doing some messed up things. Right. People are still finding – I mean of all this description that we've talked about of of people in their midlife not growing much and all that stuff, statistically they're still doing better than their counterparts outside the church. Maybe not Mm -hmm. in the more fundamentalist churches, but just take your – you're sort of median evangelical in church. The, the social science data is good, is strong. Their mm-hmm. marriages last longer. They report themselves as happier. They have more, they have better sex lives. You know, their children are less likely to use drugs, be promiscuous, do have risky behaviors. There's all these benefits. They're real. Uh, yeah. By the time this comes out, the episode on that will have already aired. So Marvelous. it's not like, so it's not like these people have nothing to latch on to. Yes. They've got just enough evidence that the whole thing is in fact correct. It's not enough evidence to really prove it, but they can, they can keep the, they can keep it going in their own minds. They can keep it going. And there's not a whole lot of incentive to look for more. Totally. Because everybody that is struggling should be able to access what they have and become and achieve this level of flourishing as well. Right. There's an internal explanation for what that yes. explains other problems that is, of course, false, uh, but yeah. matches well enough with what they see or is plausible enough given the other things that exactly. they'll stick with it rather than questioning the entire frame. Yeah. But it, I mean, but it's also exhausting to be in church leadership. It's a hard job. It is a really hard job. And people are, again, they're doing the best that they know how to do. And so when people start asking for more, I'm saying like, where is the help? Where is the transformation? Where is the growth? It not only feels like they're questioning Jesus, like they're questioning you. Hmm. And if you have like been sacrificing your own family to work way too much at church, and you have been shutting down your own needs and concerns, then it's really easy to resent people who are not being a good sport and not making the same sacrifices and that you are and suppressing the same things in the name of Jesus that you're suppressing. You know, because again, like our own, our own dignity becomes bound up in having gotten it right. And God's goodness becomes bound up in having gotten it right. So if you've been burning yourself out, harming your own relationships for decades, to consider the possibility that there may be more, and you have like not only been doing without in your own life, but using the name of Jesus to encourage other people to do without as well. I mean, think of how angry you would feel at God just to consider that. 
Yeah. And like, what tools would you have to deal with being angry, to- angry towards God in that system anyway? Oh, I mean, if people, I'm sure people can imagine what you're saying, the difficulty of this, but let, if you want to take a non-religious yeah. example, it's yeah. like admitting that you were a shitty parent and that your kid is a drug addict because you were awful. Yeah. How many parents, like that's true of some number of parents where actually they use drugs in the womb and then they used them when the kids were around. And, you know, there, of course there are systemic reasons for all that stuff. I'm not, yeah. I'm not simply blaming, but like what percentage of parents who genuinely contribute to their kids ruined lives really come to terms with that and really admit it. It's the ones who go shame. to AA maybe. Yeah. Uh, so whatever, and whoever ends up in NA or AA, they will admit yeah. it. And everybody else pretty much never will. It's, it's a massive ask. For yeah, if you if you don't have a community that can help you connect to Jesus in that level of shame and can help you come to a place of restoration where you can repair your relationships as much as possible, you can't tell the truth about yourself. So like the main areas where people cannot deal with their shame is having messed up their children and having failed in their callings in some way. Hmm. And people will sacrifice their children to the family idols in the name of Jesus every time rather than go there. Yeah. And it's not, it's not like they don't love their kids. They do. But when their own identity and the goodness of God is bound up and having already gotten it right, and you have no idea where you would go if you had, hadn't gotten it wrong, because the only thing visible is the sort of caricature of liberalism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Nothing else is visible because you're again, you're expecting that if there is another way, you would already see it as the person you are now, because you should have knowledge of reality if you are sincere and you're trying harder to mean it more. You are trying hard to trust God as best you can. There's more to be said on the spiritual abuse question. I want a little bit of time to think about it. Um, Maybe you and I down the road can do um, a patron episode where we a little shorter and we just hone in on that question. Yeah, I'd love um, to. With some more specificity. One more thing I'd like to ask you though, before we're done Mm -hmm. here, do you have any ideas on how, you know, conspiracy theories and I want to, I want to broaden this beyond just conspiracy Mm -hmm. theories, like specific ones about the COVID Mm -hmm. vaccine or whatever, but that kind of conspiratorial thinking, um, you know, really gullible end times stuff conspiracy theories, certain very questionable information sources, um, mm-hmm. you know, disembodied ones, ones that are not just from people in the congregation, but that are kind of coming at you from the internet. Yeah. What do you, does your lens have anything to say to that mm-hmm. very evident and very troubling culture in a lot of corners of evangelicalism? Absolutely. It is tied with this hyperconfidence and our own ability to see reality Um, It's tied to this tendency to treat our own anxieties as some sort of alarm system that something has gone off in reality. So then we start scanning, we start scanning the world for something that fits the size of our fears and insecurities and anxieties. If, If whatever lands happens to place us as some sort of clear thinking hero who is among the few who see clearly You know, there's a a lot of pseudo dignity in that. So what that pseudo dignity can do is explain why, explain away why we have not achieved success in our relationships or our jobs in the way that we thought that we should based on being a stand up guy or stand up gal that sees clearly, you know, that 
that means the true things hard enough, it can let us evade our own shame because it, 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 it's a martyrdom fantasy. Right. You know, it, it will eventually be revealed in the end times that I saw clearly and everybody who didn't listen to me will just feel so bad. <laughs> it's almost like if somebody if somebody inhabits this world that you're talking about, but let's say they end up inhabiting it more successfully, like they mm-hmm. live in 1990s Alabama and they live and die and pretty much most of their community stays within their mostly fundamentalist Christian frame. Yeah. Uh, that person might be less incentivized to believe other conspiracy theories because they actually didn't end up having all that much dissonance. Yeah. I mean, there's not a whole lot of the outside world that has to intrude in. Right. Whereas the internet really changes that. It does. And so it's kind of like a universal force that that questions whether or not people want it their mm-hmm. sanctified common sense of Bible facts. Yeah. Because now all of a sudden there are Muslims somewhere and they, they hate us and there's footage of them. And well, what, what's that mean? And like, you know, the, the world is much bigger. People are sending me these articles mm-hmm. and then it's like, well, how do you make, like what I'm trying to think about? And I don't, I don't think I have a clear sense of this right now is to what extent is the, is the system that you have laid out here, itself basically conspiratorial or sharing the kind of epistemological assumptions that conspiracy theories do and the kind of basic structure of the world is big and scary and complex. So instead of that, we will give a simplified answer that then calms our anxieties. To some extent, that describes the whole thing we've been talking about. Not ex- It's not exactly the same thing, but mm-hmm. it's not dissimilar Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, easy knowledge over promises and under delivers every time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually make you into somebody that can live in reality well. Right. Which doesn't mean that there aren't people with a fundamentalist sort of belief system that have nice parents and have secure attachments and do well at their job. And right, life right. basically works well for them and they're not out there destroying the world. But if you're coming into those communities and your relationships are not healthy, that's going to shape how you can connect with Jesus. You know, how much you're benefiting from what is good in the system. And there's not going to be a whole lot of help for you. So you're going to need somebody else to be bad so you can be good. Mm -hmm. And because the outside world can invade our bubbles, it's not like we can just Stay around people physically that are just like us. You can kind of do that. But the internet introduces the fact that there are people out there who do not see things the way that we do. You can't you can't just avoid that. And the normal rules of civility break down. So in real embodied day-to-day life, most of us learn not to treat people the way we do on the internet. Right. But now that's actually starting to break down. <laughs> like like there yeah. like now the internet has become a sort of formative social context that that shapes how we treat strangers in real life. It's a perfect segue into the the last question I want to ask you because yeah. one of the things that has become clear to me and I think most political uh, religious and political science sort of onlookers 
over the last 10 years or so is that our sociopolitical identity is now upstream of our religious identity for almost every American. Mm-hmm. Um, there are exceptions and I look to and love those exceptions and I try and interview them because it's becoming more rare. But one way of thinking about what we've been talking about here is that this is a fundamentally religious system that you're mm-hmm. describing. But if our religion is downstream from our sociopolitical identity, how do you make sense of that? I mean, first of all, you could disagree with me, but assuming you agree that, you know, religion is downstream from politics now for most people, how does that play in? Are, are we talking about a fairly small percentage of people who truly live out the model that you're that you're describing and a bunch of a larger group of evangelicals mm-hmm. to some degree live it out and we could recognize it so that it wouldn't it wouldn't impact the the large numbers or do you see some other kind of relationship there hmm i'm not sure if i'm understanding you clearly let me let me try and respond and you tell me if okay. i'm not getting to what you're asking i think that the most extreme voices are going to be the people that are most afraid and are therefore trying to control the breakdown of control their worlds, keep them from breaking down. Right. It's because everything feels threatening right now. It's been a really scary year for everybody. But I also think because you don't need to really take history seriously, if you're somebody that already sees reality more or less as it is, I mean, what could somebody from the past do other than confirm that what what you already see as a common sense person like but like the only people you'll listen to from the past are people that seem to be agreeing with you so there's not this historical window to look at how say the republican party has interacted with evangelicals and fundamentalists in the second half of the 20th century onward so there's just this assumption that if, that because this has always been the way things are in my lifetime, this is the way that things should be. Because I can't Im- if you can't imagine any other way, and you have been encouraged, at least tacitly, to assume that you already see reality the way it is, then you can't get out of this marriage between the Republican Party and right wing politics and fundamentalist Christianity. It seems inevitable. And, and part of, you know, part of the gatekeeping and the shaming within the community is like that. If you begin to question things, they will assume that you're, you know, pro-abortion. So that's really good. Yeah. I I've had my own thought about it. That's a slightly different tack. I wonder what you think of it. Sure. One way to make sense of it is that it's not that religion is downstream from politics necessarily for this type of person. It might be more like this. There is so much anxiety that they are trying to deal with because the sanctified common sense is not working. Their children are leaving the church. Um, society is changing. You know, there, there's a lot of whiplash around like uh, a very quick public opinion change on gay marriage, for instance, uh, the fastest uh, ever recorded that anybody knows uh, in, in American life on such a big issue. A 20 point a 20 point swing in eight years, uh, which wow. is just incredible from 40 percent to 60 percent approval during Obama's tenure, roughly that then that goes into a mode where we need 
we are persecuted in the way you were talking mm-hmm. about it earlier. And therefore, what we need is basically something to fight for us or fight alongside us because it can't be that we're wrong. It must be that the world is increasing in its power. And so we will go with someone like Donald Trump because that that assuages our anxiety. We're going to fight back uh, about the Bible truths that we see with our sanctified common sense. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, it's not so much that religion is coming after politics. It's that the religion is stunted in the way you've described, where the ceiling of maturity is so low that mm-hmm. Trump's not – he's worse, but he's not all that worse no. from the kind of people that we consider to be meeting that minimum threshold of you know viable Christian maturity. We're not looking to a Pope Francis to be like – beyond us and pulling us forward or, you know, we don't have a very wide scale of religious and moral growth. So he he doesn't look as bad as he looks to people who are genuinely looking at the Henri Nouwens of the world and the Mother yeah. Teresa's of the world. Well, and especially because he signals, he signals a rhetorical style that is rooted in common sense populist politics. 100%. He, yes. he very much flatters the common working man, at least in his rhetoric. Mm-hmm. So that's going to resonate. You know, we've, we've been trained to do that. This is somebody that is sincere. And if he's angry and rough, well, he's right about the rough, the, he's, he's sincere and rough about the right things. Right. So there's this overconfidence again, that if you just have somebody that believes the right things, they should be able to execute it because you, you collapse any distinction between intention and impact. Yeah, that's that's a consequence yeah. of of your thought that we didn't quite enumerate specifically, but yeah, intent and impact, if it's all about sincerity, they are one and the same thing. Right, right. If 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 somebody claims an impact from something that I that I did that was sincerely intentioned, it has to be a problem with them. Right. Because I'm seeing the world as it is, so I should I should not only identify what should be done, I should be able to execute it properly and it should bear the fruit that Jesus said it should bear. Right. So there's a sort of contract that you're supposed to be transformed by my sincerity. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's so much easier to have an enemy and be angry because anger just makes you feel like you're in control. It makes us feel powerful than to feel sad and afraid and ashamed because like, if, if, the, if the world shifts on what the church has always taught, you know, what it, one possible strategy would be to look at, like, what sort of fruit are we producing? Are we understanding this properly? Or are we living this out properly? Are Christian communities places of such flourishing and attachment that if we're asking people to be celibate their entire lives, their relational needs will be met? And they'll get to be part of intimate relationships and communities. Are we embodying (laughs) an an alternative that anyone would find compelling? Wow. I mean, that's a lot harder to do than just, than just assume that like what I have should be enough. What's wrong with you? Clearly the darkness hates the light. Right. Right. But we don't actually know how to grow. And, and to acknowledge that, would be to open up this whole big can of worms because it's not like it's not like we've selected for communities full of vibrant people that can help us walk through this nobody around us knows any more than we do right 
and 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 we wouldn't we wouldn't know how to recognize somebody who could do differently like because the only people on our radar are liberals and other people like us that's the consequences of the the sharp boundary and the low ceiling of of yeah. moral development right yeah a lot Maturity. of the people out there that are that are teaching people how to pray and connect with Jesus and walk in maturity. Like they're just being quiet and they don't have time for this stuff. And they're, they're just doing the good work and producing good fruit and they're not flashy. Right. And if, if those people aren't on your radar, don't assume that you would know how to find them. You gotta, so Jesus, if you are who you say you are, could you shape my receivers and shape my navigation system to help me find people that know how to help and help me, help me recognize them and help me build trust with them. Cause it's so scary for me to hope. Hmm. Well, Heather, what a fantastic conversation. This is one of my favorite chats I've had in a long time. I'm going to have a link to your, your Twitter for people in the show notes. Any, anything else you'd like to say? Jesus knows how to help. He already does. And it's okay if we don't know what to do. And he can handle that we're disappointed. He can, he can handle that we're afraid. He can handle that it is hard for us to hope and trust him. Because he knows how to get through to us. Hmm. He knows how to get through the particular barriers to trust that we have. And he actually wants to show up in our lives. I love your pastoral heart combined with the theory. I think it's a really special combo and I'm so excited for you to keep doing work in this area. I really am. Thanks, Dan. And I I would also say like there are more options in the world than a a form of evangelicalism that assumes that we can see the Bible clearly and the sort of caricature of, of liberalism that people imagine in that world. There are more options than those two things. I hope that this whole entire podcast is an argument for that. And that's yeah. what it's trying to do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm right with you on that. Yeah. So I would love to talk to you again sometime about what we do if we're coming out of that world and we don't know how to pray or read the Bible because we're expecting God to be angry at us and we hear scripture in an angry tone because there are some practices that can be really helpful for that. Yes. No, that's a really yeah. good one. It, it's yeah. Some of the challenges around, you know, what you might call reconstruction uh, mm-hmm. after trauma, right? Yeah. Well, I'll make a little note about yeah. that because I think we should talk more about spiritual abuse and yeah, re- recovering from that basically. And yeah, so we will, we should do another one and, and we'll try and hit on that as well. Fantastic. Dan, I really enjoyed getting to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me on here. It was, it was excellent. Thanks. Cool. Take care. Thanks so much to Heather for being here. Her Twitter handle is in the show notes. If you want to follow her on there, Josh Gilbert is my editor You are listening to Havana Swim Club. The song is called Yeah from the self-titled album. All the Spotify and all those links are in the show notes. And you can become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That's also in the show notes. And you can hear the recent episode where we dissect the results from my spiritual abuse survey that had over 3,000 respondents. Exciting stuff if you're a nerd like me. 
And uh, thank you guys just so much for all your support. We'll see you next week. 